This evening I'd like to reflect on the theme of the, the judgmental or self-critical mind. When Siddhartha sat underneath the Bodhi tree, he was assailed by the arrows of restlessness and aversion and craving and doubt. And in a real way, he was just meeting his own mind and heart and everything our mind and hearts can do to keep us mired in confusion and fear. And he saw very clearly that only as long as he allowed these forces to intimidate him did they hold the power to deny the freedom he sought for. And that when he stopped being intimidated and when he could look Mara in the eye and stop fleeing and say, I know you, that the energy of Mara was made powerless. Now this story of Siddhartha underneath the Bodhi tree really in a way holds the essence of this teaching and the essence of mindfulness. That everything that we regard as being such a problem, an obstacle, or, or even so impossible, remains impossible only as long as we are intimidated by it. And that without that fear, then in truth, the difficulties and the obstacles do become our classroom of awakening. Because where else would we really learn about patience and compassion, about balance and freedom? We don't actually really learn those lessons the best way in the most idyllic moments of our lives. Now the story of Siddhartha's meeting with Mara, of course many of you have heard countless times And perhaps have noticed that there's one outstanding visitor or obstacle that is never mentioned, and that's the visitor of the inner judge, the inner critic, with its ongoing song of self-blame and shame and belittlement and contempt, the ongoing song of self-consciousness that can shadow the lives and hearts of so many. It's kind of like our contemporary ascetic practice. Um, And for many, you know, many people do, many women do speak about how the judgmental mind just accompanies accompanies them through their day. Always fault finding, comparing, such, in a way, such a familiar presence that it's really hard to imagine a life free of the inner judge. So familiar that it actually really seems to be almost a kind of integral part of who we are. And if this is a completely irrelevant topic for you, just take a nap. You know? <laughs> 
perspective. But my suspicion is that self-judgment is all too real and all too painful. And something that causes so much suffering simply cannot be exempted from our practice. And as much of our path is about being mindful of our bodies and feelings, sitting and walking, the truth is that if the inner judge is really neglected or ignored, or if the inner critic is not attended to in the light of awareness, then actually it ends up coloring and distorting everything that we do in practice just as it can end up coloring, distorting everything we do in our lives. Now, before I really uh, kind of go into my understanding of what's happening in the inner critic, I think it it really is so important, and Narayan also began to do this last night, so important to make this distinction between the inner critic and what is called in this teaching discernment or discriminating wisdom. Because it's very important to acknowledge that discriminating wisdom got us here. It gets us out of bed in the morning instead of just putting the pillow over our heads. Discriminating wisdom is what leads us to reach out to another person, to end pain, to end harm. It's discernment that actually leads us to say no to the causes of suffering, injustice, oppression. It's the that quality of discernment and discriminating wisdom that brings us to sit and to walk rather than, you know, taking off for a pizza in Woodacre. Mm-hmm. It keeps us showing up in all the moments when everything seems impossible. And discriminating wisdom, you know, mindfulness is always in a dialogue with discriminating wisdom. And it's the source of every wise act and word and choice that we make in our lives, every step that we take that leads to the end of suffering. But discriminating wisdom is also in a dialogue with other things. You know, discriminating wisdom is in an ongoing conversation with ethics, with integrity, with compassion, with kindness, with knowing what leads to healing, knowing what leads to perpetuating suffering. It's discriminating wisdom that actually teaches us to really find the Buddha in ourselves and in others in every moment of our lives. Now, the inner critic or the inner judge, I think, is something entirely different. Now, we might still get out of bed in the morning. We might still sit and walk. But in every, we might even still show up. But every step of the way, we will be berating ourselves for being stupid or unworthy or inadequate, for never be good enough. There'll never be a single sitting or a single walking that's good enough. And the inner judge is drawing not so much on the Buddha, it's really drawing on Mara. The inner judge is drawing on a version 
and craving and ill will and fear. And rarely is the inner judge the source of wise action or thought or speech or choices. And I think it's obvious that the inner judge hardly leads to the end of suffering, but in fact is in itself suffering and compounds suffering. Also, rarely does the inner critic ever see the Buddha in ourselves or in others, but instead closes the door of everything to everything that is true and free and worthy. And it doesn't draw on the ethical guidelines. These, in fact, are often suffocated by the inner critic because you can see when the inner judge is operating just how deeply harmful and wounding it is to our own hearts and lives. So I think it is just incredibly important to make this distinction between discriminating wisdom and between the inner critic. Discriminating wisdom is entirely necessary and useful and very much central to this path. The judgmental mind is completely optional and in truth is pretty much useless. It doesn't change anything, it doesn't lead to transformation, it doesn't end suffering. Roshi Kennett, a teacher in the Zen tradition, once said that the training in liberation really begins with compassion for the self. To cultivate the non-judgmental mind is the key to opening the heart to generosity and compassion. So I think it's re- it really is, I think, very important to, to reflect on this. How, how do we let go of the inner critic? How is it uprooted? Even to ask yourself the question, what does the non-judging, the non-judgmental mind and heart even look like? Because we would surely like one. What would it mean to be free of the inner critic, the inner judge, to put that sniping voice to rest? And, you know, in a way you can take this as a koan, as a question, into, into your practice. And I think to really understand it and to really find the answer, we really need to turn our attention to the judgmental mind, to embrace its painfulness with the same mindfulness you would bring to a pain in your body. Really remembering that, you know, compassion is learning to listen to the cries of the world. Learning to listen to suffering is the root of compassion. And certainly this, this, this painful voice of the inner critic is one of the cries of the world that really does bear listening to deeply. Now, this sense of compassion in our practice is really, as much as kindness is, the very essence and the heart of mindfulness. It's really what allows us to see and to understand and to find freedom in everything that seems so intractable and impossible. Mindfulness, as we experience it here, is is very much a present moment experience. It's truly concerned with embracing and understanding the entirety of each moment 
with tenderness and with warmth and with interest. And in the light of that engaged attention, we really discover that it is actually quite impossible to hate or to fear anything that we truly understand, including the judgmental mind. And perhaps that we see that one of the greatest barriers to compassion and freedom is really not the suffering and the adversity that we all do meet in our lives, but the greatest obstacle to freedom and compassion. And the greatest painfulness is actually the ongoing tendency to be judging, criticizing, inflicting tremendous harm upon ourselves. Because a judgmental mind, what it does is it hardens our heart to ourselves and it armors our heart against the possibilities of love and wholeness and freedom. In a way, the inner critic closes the door to our own Buddha nature. And that's the door we're really trying to open. So I think there is a value, a tremendous value and significance in learning to look the inner judge, the inner critic in the eye, not to be intimidated by it, but to open our own dialogue with self-judgment. You know, not just wanting it to go away, but to understand it and to ask really what this inner voice of the inner judge and the inner critic is really teaching us. And I would go so far as to suggest in a way that the whole of the path and all of the wisdom and compassion that we seek for can be found in understanding this judgmental mind. What would it be like to get up in the morning and, and to sit and to walk with the sense that Every single thing that we're being asked to understand is found in this, this inner voice that can be so harsh. Now, none of us, no matter what it may seem like, is actually born with a judgmental mind. This is learned behavior. It's a well-practiced way of being and seeing and relating. And it can be unlearned. And it's not just about feeling better about ourselves and all the things that we like. It is actually about seeing that the judgmental mind is not a clear or a truthful mind. Because the judgmental mind actually cannot see the entirety or the, the wholeness of anything. It's not a mindful mind. Because the judgmental mind is really rests upon and is born upon seizing upon particulars, seizing upon particular, a particular aspect of our being or someone else's being, and mistaking that particular to be the truth. Now, just because the judgmental mind is not listed in the list of hindrances, as being one of the great obstacles to freedom, it doesn't mean that it wasn't around 2,500 years ago. And I'm going to read you something really, really horrible. <laughs> so feel free to flinch and boo and all that stuff, but 
Moggallana, this is what's reported anyway, Moggallana, who was one of the great disciples of the Buddha, and much, much respected, and is a person very, very wise. He was in a conversation with a nun <coughs> who he seemed to think was intent on seducing him or something. And anyway, this was his, his, his remarks to her, as it's reported. He said, you bag of dung, <laughs> tied up with skin, <laughs> you demoness with lumps on your breast. And the nine streams in your body flow all the time, are vile-smelling and full of dung. A monk desiring purity avoids your body as one avoids dung. I would see that as being fairly judgmental. I mean, <laughs> apart from the fact that actually he obviously has some kind of obsession with dung. <laughs> and the nun, the nun, wise as she is, answers. This is really good, but good guy, bad guy stuff. The answers, the nun says to Meditate on the unconditioned. Get rid of the tendency to judge yourself above, below, or equal to others. By penetrating deeply into judgment, you will find peace. <laughs> now, I would actually like to look at self-judgment in another way because we often just think it as this blanket thing, you know, with its kind of independent self-existence. Of course it doesn't have an independent self-existence, you know. It's not some sort of static channel on our inner radio that's always turned on. It doesn't have that kind of existence. So what is it like to unpack the judgmental mind? Now, as I look at this, I, I see, for me, the judgmental mind is not one hindrance, but it's actually, one way of seeing it is, a, is as a compound hindrance, a multi-hindrance. If you really just get a feeling for one moment when the inner critic is really operating, in a way you can sense the wind of all the hindrances flowing through that voice. Certainly in the judgmental mind, there is actually craving. And the craving in the judgmental mind takes the form of all the shoulds and the ideas that we hold about, obviously, how we are meant to be. There's no judgment without this. There's no judgment without a failure of ideology. There's no judgment without a failure of a should. We see in the judgmental mind certainly there is restlessness and the form of restlessness of anxiety. How we should be, how we demand ourselves to be, what we expect of ourselves. These generate endless thoughts and emotions. The fear of failure, the fear of imperfection, the fear of not being good enough, the fear of being judged by others all the ways that we struggle and strive to meet those shoulds. I mean, certainly in the inner critic and in the judgmental mind, we see aversion and ill will. You know, judge, the judgmental mind is like an equal opportunities hindrance. You know, it's got everything in it 
the ill will that gets directed towards our bodies, our minds, our emotions, our practice, the pushing away, which is a part of the judgmental mind, the, the blaming, the shaming, the belittling, which is a pushing away. And of course, in the inner critic, doubt makes a very powerful appearance, self-doubt in our worthiness, in our lovability, and in our capacity for freedom and wholeness. Doubt in our goodness, doubt in our inner beauty, doubt in our capacity to change. Perhaps the only hindrance factor that doesn't make a significant or obvious appearance in the judgmental mind is sloth and torpor. But even this hindrance, I think, makes a disguised appearance in the form of despair and powerlessness and numbness and sometimes how in the face of the inner critic and the judgmental mind, we just suddenly numb out. We just check out, we just disassociate, like it's just all too much. And of course, holding all of these hindrance factors together is the inner tyrant the view of self, the belief of who we are and who we are not. And these are always operating together because the view of self is always fueling the hindrances and the hindrances in turn turn back and fuel the self-view. And I think that, that kind of uh, you know, kind of feeding on each other is so important to see. I mean, you probably see it happening all the time. You know, I'm not good enough. I'm aversive. That makes me feel worse about myself. You know, I feel terrible about myself. I get more blaming and shaming. It comes back. I'm even worse than I was a minute ago. You know, so, I mean, it's always fueling and feeding on itself. It, it, it's a kind of vicious, toxic marriage. So I think in a way, this is our task, our invitation, our challenge to really understand this compound and to loosen the glue that holds it all together and to to rediscover actually and trust in and have confidence in really all that is beautiful, all that is possible, all that is true within ourselves and to release and to let go of all that is fabricated you know, and the judgmental mind and the self-view is surely a fabrication. It's a fabrication of misunderstanding, of delusion, and of confusion. You know, Thomas Merton once described the essence of the spiritual path as a search for truth that springs from love. And I think that search for truth that springs from love really begins with questioning the the fiction and the ideology of brokenness. The fiction and the ideology of incompleteness, which is actually all that the judgmental mind ever speaks of. In the Sufi tradition, it's said that to discover what is true, that we should let our thoughts pass through three gates and at the first gate we should ask of our thought is it true and if it is we should let that thought pass through and at the second gate we should ask of that thought is it helpful and useful and if so embrace it 
And at the third gate we should ask of that thought, is that thought rooted in love and in kindness? And that last question perhaps is the most important of all. And my sense is that the thoughts of condemnation, the thoughts of inner judgment, really fail at all three gates and all three questions. Not true, not helpful, and not rooted in love and in kindness. So if we can see that, you know, and I don't think that is actually difficult to see at all, we really then ask then, what is it that keeps these judgmental thoughts going? What makes them so convincing, so believable, what gives them so much authority? I mean, certainly, as I mentioned, the hindrance factors, aversion, craving, ill will, doubt, restlessness, anxiety, certainly they all play a part in sustaining and feeding the inner critic. If I give you an example, you know, if you uh, fall asleep in the hall and, you know, you start snoring, I mean, do you meet that event with compassion and generosity that it's really not much of an event? You know, pick yourself up, you know, start again, just fine with it all. Or would, in that situation, the all-too-familiar cycle of suffering begin? Huh? Oh, I'm so ashamed, I'm so embarrassed, I'm, I'm useless, I'm a terrible meditator, I'm hopeless, I'm, I'm unworthy, I'm bad, I'm wrong, and now everybody knows it. You know? and, and we have this really rich vocabulary of ill will. You know, and you look around you and everybody else is sitting like a Buddha. You know, they're better than me. They're great yogis. They're getting somewhere. They've got the right karma. So to really see, to, to judge, to be that critical of ourselves, we actually need something to compare ourselves with. Either we're comparing ourselves with all the Buddhas around us, or we are comparing ourselves with our self-imposed ideology of what we should be. So there's always this element of comparison going on. We're comparing ourselves perhaps to our own mythical ideas of perfection. So this can set off craving and striving, you know. Oh, you know, next sitting, you know, I'm going to be the best Buddha in the room, you know. I'm going to, you know, really have something to talk about, you know. I'm going to be the most alert person ever turned up on a cushion. <laughs> you know. And that sets off agitation, doesn't it? How am I going to do that? You know, how am I going to get more perfect? You know, how am I going to really make, make this goal? You know, make the grade? You know, and, and that creates more shoulds, more ideologies, more, more craving, and that can set off doubt and dullness. And I think it's really important to see how doubt and dullness are often really closely tied together. You know, and doubt co comes in, you know, I should just go home. You know, there's despair, there's numbness, or else we start telling ourselves a familiar story of impossibility. I'll never be able to do this, I'll never be any good at it, I'll never be good enough. And we have this thing that happens on retreat, the interview groups. <laughs> oh, is it, can't it be awful? You know, when you go in and people report about how well they're doing, you know, and how peaceful they are and how calm they are. And you say, I'm falling asleep. <laughs> I mean, isn't that hard? You know, it just feels like such 
such a kind of exposure of visibility. You know, I remember years ago when we went to an opening of a new new meditation hall in England, you know, at the monastery, you know, and they, they had all these old ajans they'd trucked in from Thailand, you know, <laughs> like lines of them, you know, all sitting up there on the stage, and they were all falling asleep. It was so interesting, you know, all us were sitting down there on the floor, all upright and perky, you know, and all these old ajans, you know, <laughs> kind of nodding back and forth. And actually, that was just the end of the story for them. I doubt that any of them were sitting up there nodding back and forth thinking, God, I'm such a schmuck, you know, and I, I really don't deserve to be here. They felt they totally deserved to be there sleeping or not. It was just, it was just a simple fact, you know. It was just a simple fact. They were tired. End of story. In reality, in this imperfect world, we all have difficulties one way or another. Yet the moment that we get lost in this endless symphony of judgment, the moment we start to become aversive and despairing, we are actually starting to take refuge in deluded beliefs of who we are, rather than taking refuge in the Buddha within us. It's a poem I'd like to read you. When your eyes are tired, the world is tired also. When your vision has gone, no part of the world can find you. Time to go into the dark where the night has eyes to recognize its own. There you can be sure you are not beyond love. The dark will be your womb tonight. The night will give you a horizon further than you can see. You must learn one thing, the world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn that anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. In this cycle of judgment, Thinking, flavored by the hindrances, flavoring self-view, self-view, flavoring thinking, flavoring the hindrances. It goes rounder and rounder, and it gets harder and harder until it becomes a habit. You know, and as the Buddha said so clearly that what we dwell upon becomes a shape of our mind. And if we dwell in ill will, directed inwardly or outwardly, directed inwardly in the form of self-judgment, it will become the shape of our mind until all that we actually see is that which is flawed and broken and impossible. You know, in India there's a saying that when a pickpocket sees the saint in the marketplace, all the pickpocket sees is the saint's pockets. When we look at ourselves or anyone or anything else only through the eyes of blame or judgment, of course we see that which is broken. But we also miss that which is beautiful and sincere and good and warm and kind and compassionate. Now, it's, it's very clear that we just cannot switch the inner judge off and it's not really actually helpful, I don't think. 
to replace it with affirmations, you know, to try and convince ourselves, you know, we're actually fine, I feel terrible, I'm fine, you know. It, it, it's actually, you know, I really believe I'm a, a failure, but actually, you know, I must be a Buddha. I, I don't think it really works, you know. And, you know, it's like Suzuki Roshi said, you know, actually, we're not perfect. You know, like Suzuki Roshi says, you know, everything's perfect, and there's a lot of room for improvement. <laughs> I don't see that as bad news. I don't see that as bad news. That doesn't have to be judgmental. I mean, you know, of course we all have a lot of room for improvement. You know, we all have a lot of room for cultivating greater compassion and generosity and kindness and understanding. That's not bad news. That's not sort of condemnation. That's just a recognition of the path that's open to us and what we can aspire to and reach for. You know, it's it's not a source of, of blame or shame. You know, and if we recognize that, you know, if we cannot even recognize our errors... It's very important to be able to recognize our our errors and the places where we blow it and the places where we make mistakes. I, I think this is really an important part of a path of, of understanding and freedom. But if we can recognize them and call upon discriminating wisdom and, and call upon kindness and call upon interest, then truly it is a path of cultivation and development. If we recognize errors and only call upon the, upon the inner critic and blame, then we just get locked into these endless loops of self-blame and shame and, and, and dread. And then it's not a path of cultivation. It's not a path of development. It's actually just a samsaric circle that goes nowhere. And I think the inner judge is actually a clue that is pointing us to look more deeply. And it, it's actually pointing us to look more deeply at this whole world of self-view. It's often kind of a secret world of self-view. When, when it's said that the path of liberation begins with having compassion for the self, it's actually the self, not myself. It's having compassion for the sense of self. Because it is, it is within that climate of self-view that judgment grows and thrives. And it's in that climate, actually, of individuality. Myself. You know, and it's, 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 it's a kind of a cultural error, I think. You know, it, it's like, like I remember the Dalai Lama meeting with a group of Western teachers years ago when he didn't know so much about Westerners. And been absolutely astonished to hear about this burden of self-judgment that Westerners carried around with them. You know, like these feelings of being unworthy and not good enough. And, and you know, it possibly is something of a cultural error that we collectively subscribe to. You know, the need to succeed, to win, to earn admiration, to, to make ourselves lovable, to be perfect, to evaluate, to compare, and then, of course, always to fail. You know, these are some of the predominant themes of a, a culture of individuality, of self-view. I would just like to suggest you to consider the possibility that there is no such thing as a perfect self. There's no such thing. It cannot be. It's, it's an impossibility. Isn't that a relief? <laughs> This is not the nature of self-view, 
to have a perfect self. It, it's, it's just, it doesn't happen. Nobody ever had one. <laughs> Nobody is ever going to have one. And you will not be the first. <laughs> I know I am never going to have a perfect self. I think that's fantastic. It can't be found because I will never then have to, I don't then, if I see that, I don't actually have to fall into this whole thing of self-judgment. It is possible to nurture an inner climate, a consciousness, a heart, where we nurture all that is healing and wise. You know, this teaching so much encourages us just to look at this whole idea of myself as a fabrication that is born of confusion. In truth, myself is actually born moment to moment of anything that I cling to or identify with. Apart from the clinging identifying, there is no myself. There's no myself to compare myself with others, to struggle with. And guess who I'm comparing myself to? Your self. Or the self that I expect myself to be. Now myself, myself is actually an incredibly fragile creature. You know, like all things that are born and created and fabricated, it's a fragile creature. You know, the moment, I mean, you've probably seen that here. You know, you you can have a moment where you've got a good self. You know, like, you know, I've got a good self. You know, I, I don't know, I had a good meditation, you know, or, you know, I had a good walking or, you know, I, whatever. You know, I had a good mental state, so I've got a good self if I've identified with it. Notice how it just gets knocked off the shelf a moment later. You know? A different mental state arises, a different experience. I identified with it. Where is that my good self? My good self is like some distant memory. You know, and now this terrible self has appeared. And how long is that going to last? Gets knocked off the shelf by another form of clinging. And now my self is like this. Please notice this. You don't have one self. You've got a crowd. It's changing all through the day, you know. I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm sorry, you know, I'm ashamed, I'm proud, I'm all the things I can be. Some of them lovely, some of them don't feel so lovely. Now, the judging mind is actually manifests this identification. If you would please notice that the story of judgment needs a storyteller. And who is it? That the story of judgment and the storyteller of the judge are co-joined. They arise together and they pass away together. Now the storyteller of judgment is endlessly giving credibility and authority to the story the truth of the judgment. The story told is reinforcing the storyteller. Those two are always arising and passing together. It's a kind of toxic marriage. And I think that toxic marriage of the story and the storyteller 
is actually just so important to see and and seeing it actually can bring a tremendous sense of ease and relief that maybe truly there is another way of being that actually doesn't bring so much suffering. Now, even wanting, of course, a judgmental mind to go away can just be more ill will. You know, we layer judgment on top of the judgment. And there's a, I shouldn't be so judgmental. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, it's part of being human to want this very, very difficult inner voice to, to just be silent and to, and to go away. But sometimes even that wanting it can go away is just a more enlightened appearance of the storyteller. We're telling ourselves to let go of judgment. Well, you know, did you wake up this morning and decide to be judgmental? You know, did you wake up this morning and decide to grasp hold of something? I think it's so important to understand that letting go is always born of understanding. I don't let go of anything. I've never let go of anything. And when we take upon ourselves a responsibility to let go, we're actually reinforcing a kind of self-view. You know, even when we shout at ourselves, I have to let go, how am I going to do that? How am I going to do that? It is not the responsibility. Our responsibility is to understand the construction of self-view and hindrance and habit and how these are operating together, how they go round and round together. Now, we don't cultivate compassion for myself. We cultivate compassion for the sorrow and pain and the confusion that is created or born of this fabrication of believing in myself. Now, if you examine this self-view a little bit, perhaps you see that selfing, and Pali certainly is a language of verbs, selfing and grasping are two words for the same phenomena. Letting go and non-identification and non-selfing are also different words for the same phenomena. Do you get that? <laughs> selfing and grasping are just two different words for the same activity and the same phenomena. They're not different. It's not like I grasp. Grasping and selfing are the same phenomena. They're not separate. They're not separate. Non-selfing and letting go are also two words for the same phenomenon. So actually letting go actually happens. Some, what letting go does is that it's not that I let go because I didn't grasp. Grasping and selfing are the same. So letting go actually happens actually not because I shout at myself to let go. Letting go happens actually in the light of understanding in the light of insight, not as a response to some command I have given to myself. Then the whole of the path can actually be seen in this judgmental mind, because selfing and grasping is just taking hold of an aversive-laden thought. 
then we've got the inner judge and we've got we've got the voice of the judgment huh? I don't know <laughs> I don't know if I can say that. the inner judge is simply aversively thoughts that have been taken hold of and the self-view is created Aversive-laden thoughts have been grasped, are grasped, and self-view is created in that moment. So then part of our journey is really to see that and to understand that. Now, the whole path can be seen within that because in a way, you know, it's not just actually, there's another piece here that's important to understand because there's this piece of history. You know, that we have a history of doing this. So we, it seems more true then when we do it in the process in the moment because we've done it a thousand times before. You know, so when I take hold of, you know, oh, I, you know, I'm so ugly or I'm so, you know, inadequate, it actually seems more true because we recognize that thought because we've had that thought a hundred times before and a thousand times before. But just because we've had it a thousand times before does not make it more true which is what we believe, it actually only shows us what we are more prone to take hold of. It only shows us what we are more prone to grasp hold of. doesn't make it more true. It's just that because of its repetition, we recognize it and think, oh, that must be so. That must be so because I've had that thought before. And I've had that aversive-laden thought before. It doesn't make it true. It just shows us what, where we're more habitually inclined to grasp. If you take away from the thought the history, if you take away from the thought the self-view, if you take away from the thought the hindrance and the grasping, it's just a thought. It's just a thought not a description of anything that's true, not a description of ourselves. It's just a thought that has no intrinsic power to dictate our happiness or freedom. Now, this practice of mindfulness we are doing, we apply to the body and to all bodies of experience, but we apply it to the mind and all the the experience of the mind, but we also apply this practice of mindfulness to the body of judgment. You know, we train ourselves in many things, in ethics, in, in loving kindness, as an antidote to ill will and aversion, as an antidote, actually, to the habit of self-judgment. You know, and we train ourselves in investigation to see this process, this fabrication, being born moment to moment. And at times, of course, of course, it seems very effortful at times. But with practice, it becomes more effortless. And I think it's really seen that we are training ourselves actually in freedom. We're training ourselves in understanding self-view and grasping, understanding that they are not the truth of the moment, but they are just the grasping of the moment. And in the light of that awareness, it begins to soften. You know, someone recently on retreat, they told me they were you know, really restless and doing one of those things that restless minds do, and they, they were reading the instructions on a fire extinguisher. And, <laughs> and the, the, the first instruction they saw, it says, aim the nozzle at the base of the fire. 
Aim the nozzle at the base of the fire. Huh? Aim the nozzle of your awareness at self-view and grasping. Then the whole kind of obsession with judgment really becomes a little bit more transparent. Aim the nozzle at the base of the fire. We are invited to imagine in this practice a life and a heart that is actually free of the inner judge. It's actually free of the inner critic. A life of possibility, a life of compassion. I want to end with a poem. As above the mountains, the geese turn into the light again, painting their black silhouettes on an open sky. Sometimes everything has to be inscribed across the heavens so you can find the one line already written inside you. Sometimes it takes a great sky to find that first bright and indescribable wedge of freedom in your own heart. All this way through the great cloud, race between here and Seattle just to look beneath your face, there for all to see the well of stars and the great night from which you were born. If we take just a moment quietly Time's a walking period for the last group sitting. 